Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. When your very first day in the investment industry happens to coincide with a 20% plunge in the S&P 500, your ultimate risk philosophy is likely to incorporate a strong appreciation for market psychology. Such is the case for Gerard Minak, who began his career on October 19, 1987. Applying his trade throughout the 1990s, Gerard would ultimately rise to lead Morgan Stanley's macro strategy effort. In 2013, seeking to increase his PB ratio, he launched his own firm, Minak Advisors, focused on delivering his insights on markets, monetary policy, and the global economy to an institutional client base. Our conversation is part retrospective on the history of important risk events, where we delve into both the tech bubble and the global financial crisis and discuss the powerful role of psychology during both episodes. On a more current basis, Gerard shares his analysis of the extraordinary monetary policy regime, including negative rates and QE, both of which he views as underwhelming with respect to their ultimate impact on growth and inflation. Gerard has strong views on structural secular stagnation, a thesis he lays out utilizing a framework that gives weight to slowing population growth and the mismatch between global savings and investment. I also solicit his views on disinflation, the Phillips curve, and modern monetary theory. I find Gerard Minak's insights highly compelling, and I hope you enjoy our conversation in this episode of the Alpha Exchange. It's my pleasure today to have Gerard Minak, the founder of Minak Advisors on the Alpha Exchange. Gerard, it is great to see you, and thanks for uh, stopping by. Thanks, Dean. Good to see you. Yeah, so lots of interesting macro topics for us uh, to consider as we get started with the conversation. Walk us through your background and your career path, how you came to start uh, Minac Advisors. Sure. I've been doing macro in market since the 80s. I started the day of the crash, actually, in 87. Then worked for a few banks, worked for a British bank, a European bank, and an American bank called Morgan Stanley, where I was there for most of the time there, their global developed market strategist. And then in 2013, I decided uh, and told management that I would try and increase my PB ratio, how much I get paid, how much bullshit I had to put up with, and um, <laughs> decided to start my own firm and pretty much do exactly what I'd been doing at Morgan Stanley, which is to say big picture stuff for institutional investors around the world, write pretty punchy little notes and, and travel around the world seeing smart people and hope that some of that brushes off on me. I like the uh, start of your career on the stock market crash day. What an amazing coincidence. And I'm wondering, did that one day, maybe it was so early in your career, but what did that day do to your sort of philosophy on markets? Is it a longstanding impact? Uh, <laughs> I took over the publication, a quarterly publication that had in its September quarter issue warned of an impending equity market crash. So on the day of the crash, there was phone calls into the organisation I was working, so put me through to the person responsible for that quarterly publication, and they said, well done on calling a crash. Right. I thought, well, that's the way to succeed, call crashes. Right. And I've been calling crashes since. <laughs> Not quite, but you know, what I then learnt, trying to call a few crashes, and for me in the equity space, because I start off in the rate space, you know, the most formative was the tech bubble, which I thought was a bubble, I thought it was bleeding obvious it was a bubble, but I tell you what, fighting a bubble... Uh, ultimately, you do win, but it's very difficult. And 
through that, as I was saying, this is getting out of hand. You know, I got to the stage where you know, I put a triage on my client base. There was a third that refused to see me anymore because I was too bearish. Another third that would see me only to say that, Jared, you just don't get it. And the final third would say, we agree, it's a bubble. Can you tell us when it's going to pop? To which I'd say no. So um, you're as uh, useful as, uh, as they say, tits on a bull, <laughs> if that's your attitude. So that was also another formative experience. And it helped me in a way in 07, 08, when you could see all the, the distress in credit and yet equities continued to fly higher, like the cartoon character sort of running off the cliff, pumping legs. And even then it was hard to know when they'd realise there was nothing underneath. But it just is a lesson in markets that they can stay irrational longer than you can stay sane. Yeah, it's sane and solvent. So so you pointed to two things there. One is the tech bubble, which is this the force of exuberance that even though it seems unsustainable and the price to value ratio is just clearly dislocated from anything you could justify, but boy, you don't want to get in front of that train. You know, to short that is could be career ending and would have been for, for many folks. And then the opposite side's also the, the case. The pendulum can swing so far to the pessimism side that to uh, get long something that's got value, let's say in the uh, financial crisis, to withstand the mark to market on that is so painful. How do you think about the the psychology of the swings from you know between fear and greed? Well, th- this is why you know trying to model this, or I hate to be derogatory, but central bankers or academic understanding of markets, if they haven't done it, they don't realise the power of the stop loss and how that can overshoot, and these overshoots can take can last as I said, for an extended period. And picking the turning points is also very difficult. Now, it's okay for market participants who are just trying to maximise PML to be subject to that, but when it feeds into public policy, that makes it exceptionally difficult. But I have to be humble about this. I mean, even in hindsight, can I tell you why tech stocks peaked in March 2000? And people say, oh, it was the, you know, the time war and a merger or whatever. I go, well, hold on, there was, there was deals before that didn't, the catalyst. And I really think, there is a stage in markets as they get more and more stretched. A butterfly can flap its wings somewhere and that just produces it. And it could have been other butterflies flapping their wings didn't do it, but you have these very complex systems and small changes when you're at a critical state can have a big impact. But forecasting that uh, is exceptionally difficult. And all I've learned is, in a sense, to look for things that have some optionality around so that you're not too tied down to timing but you can benefit or be hedged if there is a turn in the direction the fundamentals say that it should be a turn. Right. And, you know, th- you point to the the tech bubble in that sort of period in March of 2000 as the, the peak. It's a similar sort of question mark I think I always grapple with with the financial crisis. You know, at some point, the momentum in housing prices ceased. Perhaps there was the early unraveling of some of the most extended of the subprime lenders, but it's really hard to pinpoint the exact sort of catalyst for it starting to come undone. And even as you look at the ferociousness of the financial crisis, it's also something that seemed to unfold in slow motion, right? 2007 was the the setup for the the pain for 2008. What was that period like for you? What was a your work focused on in, let's say, that those lean vol years of 2004, 5, and 6? And what were the types of observations you and your team had going into the financial crisis? The difficult thing for me, particularly as an equity-focused investor, was almost the impervious Chinese walls between the equity side of a lot of investment businesses and their credit sides. I mean, it was 
clear early on, I thought, that we were reaching dangerous proportions of leverage. I wrote a lot of notes about what I call triple-layered leverage. You had indebted investors using levered vehicles to buy levered instruments. And once that unraveled, it'd be painful. The financial system looked more vulnerable, not just because they were themselves levered, but the use of wholesale funding made bank runs a lot easier than it did in the days when you had deposit-based financing. As JP Morgan did in 1907, you just slow down, have one talent giving people their money, and it just slows it down. But you can't do that when you're wholesale funded. And I was blessed, I have to say, at Morgan Stanley with a, a credit research team that was all over uh, the issues that we saw in, in securitisation in the residential market. So we were well armed in that way with the fundamental knowledge of what was going on in credit markets. It was then translating it into how actionable it would be for, for equity people. Now, at one level, there were some straightforward calls, you know, be underweight housing stocks. And indeed, they started to underperform from memory 05, 06. And it was a, a, a trade that just kept on giving for year after year. But if you were trading the asset classes, that was far more difficult because equities kept on performing. And you got to these almost bipolar markets in the first half of 08, where you had credit in absolute full-blown distress and global equities, particularly led by emerging market stocks, making new all-time highs. So then you had this, uh, you know, like you do in all sort of periods of, of stress or lunacy, the question, how long would the, the elastic stretch? You knew both markets couldn't be right on a one or two year view. I was firmly in the camp that the credit market was giving the correct signal. But once again, advising my equity clients as to how they should position when I thought markets were clearly not paying enough attention to the economic risks was, was difficult. Right. Right. I'm, re- I'm reading this book that in combination, Bernanke, uh, Geithner, and Paulson came together and just recently wrote. It's uh, financial firefighting. It's the sort of experience through the crisis era. And a lot of the commentary is on runnable funding and the vulnerability that exists in funding your business in large measure through repo in very, very significant size, having to do that overnight every day. The leverage on leverage that you point to, you know, we can look at the the dealer ratios of of uh, debt to equity. They all were just going up and up and up. And so, in hindsight, you look at this and you see also the tightest credit spreads that we'd ever seen, even for financials. It just seems so toxic, and that's hindsight. And we lived through it. And there was this orthodoxy of of. Uh, views on finance, that the dispersion of credit risk through innovation and derivatives, and it turns out to have been really off the mark. And even the three guys that wrote the book that tried to fight the fire, they were humbled by it too. You know, They said, we just missed this. What do you say to that? What are the lessons that we learned in, in the setup into the financial crisis? Well, well the first thing is I, I doffed my cap to those three guys for being honest enough to still admit they missed it because- as these things fade, these days you struggle to miss a person, to find a person who didn't realise that the tech was a bubble in the late 90s. Well, as someone who was saying it was in the late 90s, trust me, that was a non-consensus call. And now, 10 years after the event, it seems that most people realise that there was a credit bubble. Well, I remember they didn't. Uh, so, as I said, good to have refreshing honesty. People remember how they missed it. I thought one lesson from the whole thing was how the people that did warn of risks weren't policymakers, weren't academics, they tended to be historians. Someone who just looked at history and said, you know what, bubbles are a recurring theme. What are the giveaways of bubbles? As opposed to the people that believed in the new technology of debt, which always smelt like BS it turned out to be. 
So, I mean, I, I think the practical experience of looking at history and the warning signs tell you when a bubble is building may not be that helpful for when it's going to pop. That's 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 very difficult. But here's the irony. I mean, uh, the people that we deal with in markets, uh, timing is critical. For policymakers, it shouldn't be. They don't need to 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 know exactly when something's going to turn. They need to prevent it happening. And that ultimately was the big issue. I thought the policy leaders, by and large, did a good job in the crisis. That doesn't get them off the hook, though, for the, for the circumstances that got us the crisis because they were key, not the only, the, but key enablers. And the belief in the, I guess, the power of markets, the wisdom of markets that deregulated banks would never do this sort of stuff. I mean, it reminds me just recently back home in Australia, we've just had a, an $80 million inquiry into the the conduct of the finance and banking system, and they've discovered that bankers are greedy, ruthless bastards. <laughs> now, I could have told them that for yeah. a lot less than eighty million bucks. Right. I mean, <laughs> you know, history is littered with that, with examples that prove that. Uh, so once again, it's it's you know, look at what what form these people have, and you know, the perils of self regulation in a in a banking system when you've got lopsided incentives. You see it repeatedly in different economies. When you look back at you, the entirety of your work across your career, what, what would be the one or two most significant risk episodes, let's say outside of the financial crisis, that have tended to shape your philosophy and increased your understanding of maybe the complexity of the system or where risks might be underappreciated? To answer a slightly different question, one thing I learned early on is you've got to do the work. I mean, you've got to, you've got to dig deep and, and get a solid foundation for your views. I always say to people, if you want to have strong views in markets, not do work, there is a job for you. It's called sales. But if you do the work and it comes out with an answer that no one else is talking about, don't then go back and try and come back with an answer everybody's talking about. Go out with the, non-con- you know, the, the non-consensus view. And I guess the first time I, I learned that was, uh, this is a slightly parochial example, is the Asia crisis in the late 90s. And the view then, the consensus view was that it would push Australia into recession. And I, mean, I just did work looking at trade linkages, uh, plausible offsets, given that the Aussie dollar was down, what that would do, and said, well, I don't think we'll have a recession. And we dodged the bullet. So that just said, back yourself as long as you've done the work. But in terms of you know, where, where the risks can come from, I think it is true in financial markets, like that seems to be true in war. Generals are always fighting the last war. So the sort of setup that we had heading into the financial crisis or heading into the tech wreck, we're not what brought us down next time. And if you think broadly about you know the last 30 years of financial history, we've had crises in speculative equities, crises in banks, crises in the household sector. It's almost a case of, right, whose turn is it next? Right. And the two sort of other major candidates are, are corporates, non-financial corporates and government. Now, I'll be honest, immediately after the GFC, I nominated the government because I I said, look, the main thing that was the outcome of the Great Recession was we saw the great swap. We saw debt swap from the private sector to the public sector. We saw income swap from the public to the private. Uh, I thought we were seeing, in a sense, tail risks swapped. I'm less worried about that now. Uh, I think that partly because recent discussion about MMT, modern monetary theory, and I do think we will see more aggressive, non-conventional fiscal policy deployed next cycle. 
and that reduces, in a sense, the risk for government. Plenty of other risks out there that that may produce, but I don't think we're going to have a government crisis in most places. Still, obviously, possibly in Europe where people don't control their own printing press. But that leaves uh, non-financial corporates as the next target. It's their turn almost. Mm -hmm. Now, we are seeing an increase in leverage in a number of places. My own judgment is right now it's not reached the egregious levels that we saw for the equivalent in the housing sector last time. In the GFC, obviously, it was the the spontaneous eruption of, of those credit stresses that pushed us into recession. I don't think we're going to get that sort of sequencing with the corporate sector now. I think it will be an issue in the next downturn, but it may intensify the next downturn, but not cause the next downturn. One of the uh, sort of paradoxes when you step back and look at market prices these days set against the the fiscal stance for for most countries uh, debt to GDP ratios are significantly higher than they than they've been in the past countries are running you know pretty significant deficits and yet rates are as low as we've seen them and I always go back to that quote from James Carville who was Clinton's strategist in the early 90s and he said when I I want to come back as the bond. When I come back from to Earth, I want to come back as the bond market because you can push people around. This whole notion of uh, of uh, bond market vigilantes, right? Uh, if you're if you're not fiscally prudent, the bond market will punish you with some sort of term premium or you know inflation expectations that are too high. And there seems to be very little of that now. We know the Japan story, at least in terms of their debt levels and their rates are zero. The U.S. It doesn't seem like there's an a, a, a response coming from the bond market as we embrace trillion dollar deficits. What does that linkage look like to you now? And, and has it evolved over time or was it a story we told ourselves that really never existed? I think it it was the reputation the bond market got was due to bigger macro factors. I don't agree with the view that the vigilantes have been anesthetized by central bank balance sheet expansion. I, I still think that they could flex their muscles if they wanted to. The trouble is there's no need to, and this gets back, I guess, to the structural secular stagnation view. But what I'd also point out is secular stagnation has been something that's had increasing power since the mid-'80s, so we've effectively had 35 years of secularly stagnating. But that followed 35 years of the reverse. And the underlying shift is is simple. Uh, for the last 35 years, we've increasingly seen desired capex, planned capex, fall short of planned saving. The only way we've been able to correct that is to put interest rates lower and lower. And although there's always been a cycle in rates, it's been a sequence of lower lows, lower highs since the early 80s. The key point is before that, we had the reverse problem. We had 35 years after World War II where there was a tendency for planned capex to exceed planned saving. So we saw exactly the reverse pattern. Yes, there's always a cycle in rates, but it tended to be higher highs, higher lows. And I guess Carvel was looking back to that era when it seemed like the bottom vigilantes were always there. They were always willing to push rates to higher levels. Now, that was just the underlying dynamics of, of the supply and demand or investment saving balance. And that was the past and it's it's a huge change. And what's driven it is a few things. I mean, demographics are absolutely critical. People don't understand how demographics drive this, in my view. The key reason demographics matter is it's all about capex. How much capex do you need to do? Well, it partly depends on how many workers you've got to provide capex for. And as the baby boomers came onto the workforce, 
we had two decades where corporates had to do more and more capex just to provide the same amount of capital per worker. Now, that's hugely shift over the last 25, 30 years. But then, yeah, obviously, had the special factors. After World War II, there was a lot of rebuild needed in a lot of the bombed-out countries, which they did do, and that was a huge source of global capex demand. So all these things have changed. If we got back to a situation where you had a shortfall of saving versus capex, you'd probably see the bond vigilantes coming back. But it's not going to happen while ever the forces of secular stagnation have the upper hand. And I think that is the case until we see you know, an extraordinary fiscal response, which at some stage may happen courtesy of the theories such as modern monetary theory. You have, so you pointed to population growth, and I'm looking at one of your charts here that goes back way back, and you see this significant increase in population growth that, you know, it, it actually, if you overlay bond yields on this, it seems to be well correlated. If you look at the next 20 to 50 years of population growth, it's hard to predict it, but the trend doesn't seem like that's going to change no. anytime soon. My view is that most of the causes of secular stagnation remain intact, and I always sort of rattle off half a dozen of them, and I'll rattle them off here. Um, you know, it's debt, got too much leverage. Uh, demographics, the point we're discussing now. Globalization, now that's probably the only one that may be fading a little. Digitization, so new digital technology, which can cut labor costs, and that potentially is getting more frightening. Inequality, and the reason inequality is on the list is that as income becomes more unequal, uh, people at the top end of the spectrum tend to save more, so it's a structural increase in saving. And the final one, oligopolization, growing corporate power. Now, that I think has been absolutely critical, and that's one of the areas that could be reversed as we swing towards more populist policies. But for now, most of these things remain intact. All policymakers have been able to do over the last 30 years is not correct or reverse those underlying causes. They've been able to provide symptomatic relief by cutting interest rates sequentially lower and lower. The problem we're at now is we can't do that. In fact, we ran out of the room for conventional monetary policy to respond last cycle. So then policymakers responded to two elements of unconventional policy, which was quantitative easing and in places negative interest rates. Now, I think quantitative easing was was hugely overrated. I guess it's important what they think. They think it did the trick, but even the adherents believe that it's got diminishing returns. So it's hard to see that quantitative easing will be deployed to overcome or as your principal policy tool in the next downturn. The second element of unconventional monetary policy was negative interest rates. Now, I think that's broadly perceived as a failed experiment, and I do not expect to see minus 5% or minus 6% Fed funds targets in the next downturn. Now, that all means if monetary policy, the main policy response last 30 years has run out of ammo, what are we going to use? Well, it's going to be fiscal. Now, if you think, as I do, that the key characteristic of secular stagnation is this idea that you have an excess of saving versus investment, then the correct antidote to that is for someone else to spend too much, i.e. the government to run deficits. And it's not, once again, it's not a cure for the underlying causes, but it's the correct antidote. And I think if we did see more aggressive fiscal policy, it would absolutely work. In theory, it would be unthreatening. Now, in theory, 
communism was going to be warm and cuddly also. So there is always a gap between theory and practice. But it strikes me that uh, having run out of the monetary policy room to respond in the next downturn, that points the way to fiscal being used. And then, of course, you've got the political backdrop after a pendulum that swung for almost 30 years towards sort of neoliberal Washington consensus ideas. It's now clearly swinging away from those things in a populist wave. The populists want to do stuff, and fiscal is the way a government does stuff. So you've got, in a sense, the policy requirement that fiscal take the lead with the political uh, desire to take the lead. Both these things come together, and it strikes me, whether you enjoy it or agree with it or not, the times will suit MMT. I remember back uh, in maybe 2012-13, the US was up against the fiscal cliff, and some of the narrative in the markets uh, at the time, uh, Bernanke used to say, well, we've got such a polarized Washington, they can't get anything done, and so monetary policy is needed to counterbalance some of the, the fact that we're not getting that lift. Do you think that the monetary policy makers, that crowd is in some sense willing to accept maybe that they've reached the limits of what they can do from a growth and inflation standpoint and that they would hand it off <laughs> to the fiscal side? I think they realize, and they've been open about this, that conventional monetary policy is exhausted. And then we get to, well, what do they do? Now, Mr. Bernanke himself had a speech where he said, well, one idea is that we do effectively underwrite government spending, but because, reading between the lines, he said we can't trust these people, the decision about the quantum rests still with the Fed. In other words, you would have FOMC meetings where they would come out and announce that they were about to deposit you know, 1% of GDP worth in a congressional bank account, let the politicians decide where to spend it, but the quantum is dictated by by the central bankers. So I do think they appreciate more fiscal-like tools need to be used, but because a lot of central bankers always have uh, limelight deprivation sin- syndrome, they want to still be part of the limelight, um, they, they see themselves as uh, participating in that process. Now, I think what's much more likely to happen is they will not be the key drivers of this. The key question in my mind is even if central banks are made subservient to the fiscal authorities when it comes to fiscal policy, will they retain their monetary independence? So let's look at a scenario where Congress insists that the Fed buys, let's say, 80 or 90% of all treasuries issued. So the Fed absolutely has to underwrite whatever fiscal expansion Congress uh, determines. But then let the Fed continue to set interest rates in whatever fashion it want, wanted to in order to hit its target of 2%. Now, that's not inconceivable. And it's the obvious check on fiscal irresponsibility because, yes, voters may like tax handouts and other spending things, but they don't like double-digit interest rates. So I, I think it's feasible to have uh, central banks retaining monetary independence even when they are under the thumb when it comes to fiscal. You mentioned inflation, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about where we are in the current state of global inflation. And first, just as unconventional monetary policy was pursued, zero interest rates, even negative interest rates, what did investors and maybe even policymakers miss about maybe the breakdown between rate policy and the inflationary impact of that, right? In the old days, you'd think, well, if I take inflation down by so much, 
inflation is going to result. And it's a little counterfactual. We won't know right, what the result had been had we not gone to close to zero, but it's certainly been unimpressive. What, what, what do you think is, was missed in terms of that linkage not necessarily really being there? I'd have to say this is a second example where the people who were the historians had a better feel for things than the ones who were the modelers and the academics. And you don't have to far back in history to see why this wasn't going to work because Japan was the template. Uh, nothing really that we've seen in the G7X Japan since the GFC is any different to what we saw in Japan pre the GFC. They tried everything. They tried zero rates. They tried QE and didn't get much traction. And, and the reasons were the forces of secular stagnation were increasingly powerful. And what I've always thought that was obvious is that there was nothing really special about the GFC. We were just continuing pre-existing trends. I mean, the sequence of lower lows, lower highs, every every major cycle in my career has seen interest rates fall to new multi-decade lows. I mean, the Fed cut the funds rate to 3% in 92.3. Wow, who thought it could possibly go that low? Then the next cycle, it went to one. Wow. And of course, this cycle, it's gone to zero. So three consecutive cycles of new uh, multi-decade lows for rates which underscores the point that in secular stagnation world, you, you can get growth. It just requires lower and lower rates. So I think they missed the lessons from Japan. They missed effectively the lessons from their own prior cycles that this was getting harder and harder to do. Overlaid with that, if you look at one of the main ways the Fed hoped, did central banks hope that QE would work, would be that if we lift asset prices, it will encourage spending through the wealth effect. Well, well even there... There were lessons. All the wealth effect is, is if I can make you feel richer, you'll drop your saving rate. Now, that worked spectacularly well in the late 1990s. You know, everybody had a bit of pets.com. They thought they were going to get rich, and the household saving rate in the States, for example, dropped to, to slightly negative. Next cycle, we all had a condo in Florida, thought we were getting rich, but the saving rate didn't drop as much. This cycle, if you look at household assets relative to household income, we're at all-time highs but the saving rates barely budged, which I figure is partly the more unequal distribution of the wealth gains. But it's also a case of people looking at the Fed going, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I'm not going to get sucked into this asset inflation driving down the saving rate story again. Last two times I did it, it burnt me. The final thing I'd say about all this is there's two great cliches when it comes to monetary policy. The one everybody quotes these days is long and variable lags. But the one that's been much more pertinent, which is as old as that, is the idea that when you cut rates, you're pushing on a string. So there's huge asymmetry in monetary policy. Yes, tightening is you're pulling on a string and tightening has observable direct cash flow impacts on people. Uh, but cutting, uh, particularly when you're trying to cut to encourage them to borrow, well, you can make the money cheaper, but you can't force them to borrow. Hence the asymmetry and people have forgotten that. What's your current thinking on the value of the Phillips curve? That's that's come a lot, uh, come up a lot in the Fed dialogue and amongst market participants. What what is that relationship meant to you over time, and what is the evolution? What does it look like now? The Phillips curve, as Mister Phillips originally put out there, is working, and that's the relationship between unemployment and wages. And you can see it today in the U.S. The curve itself has downshifted from where we were pre-GFC, 
but it still has the critical characteristic, which is it curls up to the left. That is, as unemployment falls, wage growth is accelerating. And we saw that last year. So that works. That absolutely works. The big flaw in central bank thinking has been to use the next Phillips curve, which was the relationship between unemployment and inflation. And frankly, that hasn't worked for 30 years. And that's underpinned, uh, I think, some bad decision-making. And if you look historically, the Fed has typically synchronised its rate cycle to the wage cycle. And I guess the logic was that we are an inflation-targeting central bank. Monetary policy works with long and variable lags. So if we're going to target inflation, we have to base policy on the leading indicators of inflation. And the logic was the best leading indicator of inflation was wages. Well, sorry, it hasn't been. And the result of that has been right through this expansion, persistent inflation undershoot. And I guess in this upcoming review of Fed Fed operations and possible inflation targeting, this will be one thing they should address. And I think they've missed a few things. Uh, but first and foremost, what they've missed is that it is not wages that drive inflation. Uh, it's unit labour costs. And it's interesting at the moment in the US, we did see wage growth accelerate last year, but we actually saw unit labour costs decelerate because productivity picked up. Now, this should be seen as policy-making nirvana. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can have better wage growth without inflation pressure. And I should say from an equity perspective, no pressure on margins. But what they looked like doing last year was keeping that synchronisation between policy and wages, which is why last year I was saying to people the biggest single threat to the expansion is the Fed over-tightening in 2019. Well, thankfully, that's now off the table. Uh, They've stopped the tightening cycle before we fell over the precipice. And now at the stage where I almost can't see when the next Fed hike will be. And if you go back to the Phillips curve, I do think that as the labour market tightens, wages will continue to rise but there's also a chance that productivity continues to rise. And that gets to one of the reasons the Fed's view of the Phillips curve, higher unemployment uh, means lower inflation and vice versa, may have been wrong. A lot of people argue that the main reason wage growth has been lower this cycle is because productivity growth has been lower. I'm very much the view that you need to tip that on its head. I think one of the main reasons productivity growth has been slow is that wage growth has been minimal. Because if you're a a business person looking to expand capacity, you typically have two choices. You can do some capex that, in a sense, is irreversible. So if demand falls over, you are left with excess capacity, or you can hire labour. And guess what? If that labour is plentiful and cheap, that's probably what you're going to do, because if the cycle rolls over, you can just fire them again. So there's been no need to do a lot of capex uh, because labour has been readily available and fairly cheap. Now, as that changes, I think we start to see CapEx pick up. And there is a chance that that CapEx pickup encourages the productivity growth that, for a while at least, keeps unit labour costs in check. It also seems fairly clear that the hurdle the data have to jump to get the Fed to tighten is higher now than we thought even three months ago. So I can't see a hike this year. I'm starting to wonder if there'll be even a hike in 2020. Now, that gets a little bit of pushback, but some of the pushback is, I think, too simplistic, which is simply, well, hold on, this is late cycle. I mean, this is a cycle that's about to to become the record holder in the US, you know, a 10-year cycle. 
Well, I say to people, you're talking to an Australian, I'm coming from the land of the 28-year cycle. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, cycles don't end just because they hit a certain age. And if we were able to keep growth at an okay, reasonable, respectable level in the States, see a bit of a pickup in CapEx, I don't know why I should expect this cycle to end. It's It will at some stage, I guess, but I can't say it's on a time horizon I think investors should position for. There was a lot, lot of conversation. I think it probably started middle of last year, towards late last year, and maybe some of it's the the risk off of the fourth fourth quarter. But a lot of conversation about U.S. inflation and not hitting the target. Clarita doing the whole review on the bygones versus catch up strategy. And for me, I, I looked at it and I said, you know, we're running at I don't know one point eight. Doesn't seem that far off. Maybe it's maybe one six now. Seems reasonably close. To target, and yet I'm starting to appreciate that they don't see it that way. I'm curious when when you look at where's the maybe the danger zone where you slip back to something that feels uncomfortably below. You know what's what's your what your current view on the the state of monetary policy, and and are are we at the appropriate level of accommodation given what we're seeing in inflation? I, I spend 99 percent of my time talking about what I think the Fed will do, not what I think they should do. If I did just for a moment talk about what they should do, they shouldn't be worried. I mean, look, ultimately the whole rationale behind having independent inflation-targeting central banks is not that we think having inflation rate around 2% is the most important thing in the world. The rationale has always been the best single contribution central banks can make to good macro outcomes, and everybody agrees that's probably full employment and fairly steady GDP growth, given the tools at their disposal, is to just try and keep inflation low and stable. So I don't think we should worry that we're missing on what is the intermediate target, inflation around 2%, if we're achieving the ultimate target, which is near full employment and trend growth. So that's that's my view. That's If I was the Fed, I wouldn't be too fast. Their view is that to see inflation persistently undershoot can lower expectations, which makes it more difficult to uh, achieve the real rate reductions you need uh, to fight the next downturn. Well, the first thing I'd say about that is, even if they had inflation at 2%, smack on target, they still won't have enough room to respond in the next downturn. I mean, ultimately, it has to be taken by other policy levers and fiscal will be first and foremost. So I wouldn't worry if I was them. It's another case I wouldn't worry. But ultimately, if, that's, if they are going to worry... They will make some shifts. I'm hoping it won't be as dramatic as a price level targeting shift. I hope they just change their modus operandi to perhaps become less preemptive, uh, which would change the balance of inflation tail risks uh, because realistically through this cycle, 2% has operated not as a mid-range of their target, but effectively as a ceiling. Let it operate as a mid-range, which means that you are as worried about or unworried about, you know, 2.5% inflation as you are as 1.5%. Now, if they change that, I I guess there may be some marginal market impact, but you come back to it's one thing for a central bank to say they want to achieve some desired inflation outcome. The Fed saying we want 2% to be the genuine mid-range. It's another thing for the market to say, yes, we think you have the tools to do that. 
because the BOJ has been telling us they were going to get to 2% for the last 20 years. So, you know, the Fed may change this. For me, the key practical upshot is the hurdle, the data need to jump to get the next hike is is moving higher. And I would have said to you last year, you know, the Fed, if they had a continued operate as they were then, as wage growth accelerated this year, which is what I was expecting, they would accelerate their rate hikes and therefore the risks around the dot plot forecast as it's still at the end of the year was that they'd hit that or actually do more. Well, now that's that's wrong. That won't be the case. Uh, the Fed's clearly changed. Uh, we don't know exactly the details, but the risks of getting that is virtually zero. And conversely, the degree to which the data have to soften to get the Fed to resume easing is a lot lower. Now, I don't think we will have that, but the ACE, there's a huge asymmetry in monetary policy now with the skew to the low side and very little skew to the high side on a 12-18 month view. So you've got this framework of secular stagnation, which is a long-term, almost unstoppable framework of uh, this stuff's really hard to uh, counteract, and it seems to imply a pushing on the string in terms of some some degree of monetary policy. And then you also are saying, from a almost a big picture standpoint, with respect to the the maybe hand off a little bit from monetary to fiscal MMT discussions, we might see more fiscal. What does it look like, let's say, five, 10 years out? And it's not a crystal ball type question, but I was looking at five-year, five-year and the inflation swap. It's about two and a quarter. And so as you sort of think about these very strong forces of secular stagnation, maybe set against the early trend towards the handoff, maybe from fiscal to uh, from monetary to fiscal, how does that two and a quarter kind of long-term break-even inflation rate look to you? Is that about right or what's, what's your it view? It looks a little skinny, but I wouldn't be a high conviction call to look for it to go a lot higher at this distance, at this distance, particularly as you know the introduction of more aggressive fiscal policy will vary country to country. And you know if you looked at the candidates to be the first people to get more aggressive on fiscal, I'd probably nominate uh, Japan and the UK. And there, I suspect, their long-dated future inflation pricing in markets are too skinny, particularly in Japan. The US is a little bit more problematic. Two and a quarter seems roughly right. There will be risks that will go above that, but you know it's higher than what it has been, which makes some sense. So I think there are other opportunities to play what would be the outcome of a, a shift to more aggressive policy. What does that look like? Well, it would be looking at some of the forward inflation forecasts in other markets, but ultimately you've got to have some gold in your back pocket. And I think if we do get this this handoff and it's done aggressively, the tails on the inflation distribution change dramatically. For the last 10, 15 years, the fat tail's been the left side. If we get the more aggressive, even if I would have as a base case that, you know, the most likely inflation rate only moves a little higher, you know, the tail on the right side also gets fatter. So the expected outcomes rises, but the, the asymmetries swap around. But we need to see it. And my own view on all this is that the catalyst to get these aggressive changes will be the next recession. Now, that means that to price these, or to, sorry, to invest in these trades now probably doesn't pay off because my hunch is you'll get much better entry levels as markets see the next recession coming or in the midst of the next recession and probably depress a lot of these prices. You'll be able to pick them up at lower yield equivalents. That's really interesting. If you think about the sequencing, uh, recession, 
break-even inflation levels come down a lot, it necessitates the response, perhaps from the fiscal side. And now you have an entry point on the essentially buying upside and inflation that could be quite interesting. That's great. Well, uh, Gerard, uh, thank you so much for stopping by. Great. Thanks, Dean. Uh, we're going to leave it there. Always just so interesting to hear your work. I think it's absolutely outstanding. And thanks for the discussion. Yep. You're welcome. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. (laughs) 